0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another gathering here in my home. I'm so happy that you're joining me. If you don't know, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors at Riverbend, and I am thrilled you're on this journey with me, um, learning the way of Jesus. And we're gonna get into a teaching from the scriptures here in a minute, but first things first, So exciting. Um, Governor Brown has opened up Deschutes County for phase one of reopening, um, which I'm really, really excited about, as I'm sure you are too. Hopefully you're getting back to life as normal, at least a little bit. Um, So it has all kinds of implications for us, but The main one that I want to talk about here is that we can begin having gatherings of up to 25 people. Now, uh, with a church size, um, obviously we're not all going to be gathering together um, yet, or hopefully soon, but not quite yet. But what we can do is begin gathering in our Riverbend communities and care crews, um, which is really, really exciting. Your Riverbend community leader has all of the details and information on how we think we can best do this. We're also going to be just encouraging everyone and want to encourage you to uh, follow social distancing guidelines as best as we possibly can uh, during this time. And if phase one goes well, Governor Brown uh, will open us up to phase two, which we don't have details on that yet, but we expect we may be able to gather in even larger groups than 25 when that happens. So we're hopefully on this path back to gathering in person, worshiping Jesus in the same room together, and I cannot wait for that to happen. But... Um, as we um, launch into uh, phase one of reopening and start looking at gathering in riverbending communities again and care crews and all of that, we wanted to um, like give again our full and undivided attention to Jesus and to really come back to his vision for life together. So I'm calling this message a call back to life together. So I want to pose this question to you, okay? So we're um, about to reopen sort of reintegrate back to life somewhat as normal but rather than just going back to all of the things that we were doing before and i'm not just talking about your spiritual life i'm talking about everything Um, your habits your practices the way you spend your time the people you spend your time with rather than just adding all of that back right away what if we stopped and we added things back really intentionally and what if we took it a step further and actually asked the lord asked jesus what he wants us to add back in and how so i propose that we give once again our attention fully and undivided to jesus and ask him and let let him inform what we do next and where we go from here. And I think one of the things that I keep hearing from so many of you as I am in conversation with you is that you're just craving time together with other Jesus people. And I'm with you on that. I really miss gathering with people as well. And so I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt from the scriptures, we know that Jesus is calling us back to life together. And so we wanna step into that super, super intentionally. So let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll dive into this message, a call back to life together. Father, I just want to say thank you so much for my friends, my sisters, my brothers. God, we thank you for this encouraging news that this week we can get back to gathering in our small communities, and we just want to do this well. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. Uh, Lord, we want to operate in wisdom, and we want to follow your invitation, follow your call to follow after you. So God, we pray that in this moment you would speak mightily to us, uh, that you would prepare our hearts for what you're about to say, and that we would uh, listen intently and, uh, and also obey you fully. Uh, we want to be those kinds of people who hear what you have to say and put them into practice. And so Jesus, we need you, we love you, and we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So um, as you probably already know, prior to coronavirus, um, the Western Western culture has been in what sociologists are calling the loneliness epidemic. Here's some stats for you. 46% of Americans say that they always or sometimes feel alone. 40, 47% feel left out. 54% feel that no one really knows them well. And it's not just America. Uh, Nearly half of Britons over 65 say that the television or a pet is their main source of company. How tragic is that? So loneliness is the number one fear of young people today ahead of losing a job or public speaking. In fact, 42% of millennial women are more afraid of loneliness than a cancer diagnosis. So what does all of this data tell us? It's telling us that we are craving, as a society, a family who loves us for who we are, where we actually truly belong, where we're know, where we known for who we really are, and we belong and we're loved. And that's exactly what Jesus' vision is, Uh, for community in the scriptures and this is why one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about community is not just for what it means for you and for me but how it speaks to our much larger culture about the power of Jesus's love and how it actually comes to life in our story and so um, it's definitely means going upstream to our culture because although our culture is craving belonging Uh, and is more lonely than ever before, we have to go upstream to culture in order to really enjoy community. There's specific reasons why we are this very individualistic culture and it's costing us a lot. It also means we need to be selfless and putting other people's needs above our own. But Jesus modeled a life of love in community with others. So again, let's come back to center and learn from Jesus what this really looks like. Again, as always, we don't want to just shoot from the hip or launch out in a bunch of our own ideas. We want to follow Jesus' teaching. So let's learn the scripture together. And if you're just joining us, if you're new to Jesus, maybe you've uh, recently finished the 10-week Alpha journey with a group of people from our church, and you want to continue your uh, your faith journey. For us, what it looks like is just opening up the scriptures and learning from Him, what it what he says the good life is, and what it, what he says um, real life actually looks like. So we're gonna take a peek at Mark chapter one today, and we're gonna sort of look at the overall lifestyle of Jesus, how that speaks to life together in community. So as you're turning there, the starting place for life together is the heart and nature of God Himself. So the story of the scriptures. Is the story? It's really a story of God becoming human in the person of Jesus, and in the language of Eugene Peterson, who's uh, a, a, like a, an amazing scholar from the twentieth and early twentieth-first century. Like Eugene Peterson says, he says he moved into the neighborhood. Jesus moved into the into the neighborhood, and I love that language because it it really depicts very very well. Um, what Jesus actually did in order to save us and to love us. He didn't send an email. He didn't send an encouraging text. He entered our story with a plan to, to love us, to meet us, and to redeem us. So that tells us something powerful about the God that we are living for here. He's a relational God. It tells us about His disposition towards us. He's pursuing you. He's coming towards you so that you can enjoy His divine hospitality, which we don't have time for the huge history, biblical lesson on that, but God set up the cosmos for us to enjoy God's presence and His divine hospitality. It all went sort of wildly wrong there in the beginning and middle, but through Jesus, We are coming back into God's presence, and we're enjoying His hospitality. So that's what life together is all about. It's about enjoying who God is. So from the Gospels, community, and life together, it all begins with Him. So Mark chapter 1, verse 16 is kind of how we get going here. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And when they had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them and, le- and they left their nets and they left their father in the boat with the hiremen, men, and they followed after Jesus. Okay, so um, this is just um, a, a, a basic early story in the life of Jesus, and I want to pull out from this three super simple reasons why we want to live in community. The first reason is this. Jesus did it. Okay, this is not um, rocket science as they say. Your kid, your ch- children could pull out these observations. It's very, very simple. Jesus lived a life in community. When Jesus begins his project of bringing the kingdom to earth, which is what Jesus is up to on the earth, how does he get started? How does he begin this life, this, this kingdom project? How does he do it? He invites people to join him, right? Now, This is an important point. He doesn't invite a person. He invites four in the beginning, Simon, Andrew, James, John, that's who he calls first. So from the beginning, this kingdom project is not about just Jesus. It's not about just Jesus and Peter. It's about many. It's about him calling many into his new family. So it's Jesus and the 12 eventually, and then it's Jesus and the multitudes and all the rest. So in our sort of individualistic culture, uh, we, I have a lot of conversations that go something like this, you know, hey, I love Jesus, I'm a very spiritual person, but I like to do my spirituality alone. In fact, some of the latest research that's been put out by Barna says that most people in the American West would say, yeah, I'm spiritual, but I'm individual about my spirituality. And I'm a huge fan of time alone with God. In fact, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about time alone with God, so we're not knocking that at all. It's just that time alone with God is not the full picture of Biblical Christianity. It's also including a commitment to life together. Again, because this is what Jesus did. His life and ministry was characterized by a commitment to life together, and so therefore our spirituality follows his model. Number two, Jesus invites us to be like him, okay? So it's another very simple observation, but Philippians chapter 2 and all over the New Testament really, we read this sort of idea to have the same attitude as King Jesus have the same mindset as King Jesus. So one of our main goals as a disciple of Jesus is to become like Jesus, be formed into his image. So we commit to life together because Jesus committed to life together and he was constantly surrounding himself with people to be loved. So we we can't have the the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. And so we're needing to follow in his footsteps. This is who He is, this is what He does, and so we're simply following His example. Uh, Remember, Jesus says his most basic and greatest command is to love God and to love others well. And he says in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, one of the most important ways that we love him is by loving the least or loving the ones around us who are in need. And in 1 John, it says that if we love God but don't love our brothers and sisters, we are liars. We're just not telling the truth. We cannot say that we love God and not love God's family. It does not compute, it just doesn't work. So, if all of that is true, which I would submit to you that it is, we need each other, because love doesn't exist in a vacuum, and the vision of love that we have from the New Testament involves action and commitment. And we cannot love in words only, uh, and we cannot love without getting our hands dirty. It It requires a close proximity to one another. And we can achieve that proximity we've learned over the last several months in quarantine. We can achieve that proximity through Zoom and other creative, innovative methods. But the reality is, is that we need commitment and action. That's what love requires. And so that's why Jesus made life together so critical and so inseparable from from this life of discipleship. So that's two. Number three, for Peter Andrew, James, and John, saying yes to jesus 's invitation to follow him automatically meant joining his new community, so you couldn 't separate the two out so we 've somehow gone through these uh, little little jumps, if you will, to separate out um, saying yes to Jesus as king and saying yes to following him in community but for uh but for these first disciples. Their only option, if they were going to say yes to Jesus, it meant being integrated into this new community. Um, And everything that we can observe about Jesus' life from the Gospels points to this fact or this reality that these first disciples were together 24-7, 365. They ate together. They stayed together in the same homes. They worked together. They traveled together. They taught in synagogue together. They prayed together everything they did they did it together and of course jesus escaped every now and again to the Aremos, and we talked about that in the last previous few weeks on silence and solitude so there was time alone but by and large the majority of their time was spent really with each other and i just have to believe that that means that all of the same normal family stuff that we experience in our family in our lives together as christians Uh, it all applied to that first community. My guess is that they got annoyed with each other. In fact, we have stories in the scriptures where they were annoyed with each other. They knew each other's bad habits, their idiosyncrasies, their fears and their hopes and their dreams. They knew all of those things, and they were in this sort of messy life together, and it was both challenging and very, very beautiful. So um, look down with me, Mark chapter 1, verse 29. So jump down towards the end of this chapter, and this is what it says next. As soon as they left the synagogue, so Jesus is uh, teaching in the synagogue um, in Capernaum, then it says they went uh, with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and immediately told, they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. And the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So it's this beautiful miracle. Then that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Okay, so much here I could give I don't know, 20 talks maybe on this passage alone. But this is what the new community in its early stages looked like, felt like, and and was like. So I'm trying to give you a picture of what this, this, this new community looked like in its early stages. They went to church together, and then they went to Peter's mom's house together. And when they get there, Peter's mom's sick, and so Jesus heals her. And biblical scholars believe that Peter's house in Capernaum was, was this sort of small village in the north of Israel, by the way, probably not more than like five or 700 people. We believe that Peter's house became like the world headquarters of Jesus's kingdom movement. So that's, to me, is super, super significant. For these first couple of years, the kingdom movement was birthed out of this home, which is probably just this really small Basically, what we might call a hut in this tiny little town in the north of Israel. And when you think about that, the kingdom movement, when it breaks in on the earth, the kingdom of God, when it breaks in on the earth, it doesn't, it's not like Jesus is setting up shop in this really bougie office space in San Francisco next to Google or some hedge fund or something like that. He's setting up shop in a home. And he is crashing on Peter's ho- uh, couch in his, in his at his place, and he's um, doing life and ministry out of a living room. And there's so something so powerful about that. The Kingdom movement is a grassroots, face-to-face, human-to-human sort of movement, and I think that we've sort of lost some of that in the sort of contemporary American church because things have gotten very large and very corporate and very consumeristic. And so we've sort of lost some of that value and a perfect, um, We're in a perfect moment right now because of COVID-19. Everything's been stripped away. Now we're adding things back intentionally. We want to add back the right things. And I think that culture of family and life together is one of those cultures or one of those values that we want to cultivate and hopefully cultivate really, really well. So, okay that's sort of the opening framework, basic um, introductory level stuff. Let's press in a little bit deeper. Turn with me, Mark chapter 2 and verse 14. So we're staying in the book of Mark, getting a deeper sense of what this community was like. So verse 14, as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, and there were many who followed after him. And when the, teacher, excuse me, when the teachers of the law, who were, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I've not come to call it righteous, but sinners. Okay. Love this passage as well. So we're just sort of getting an expose, if you will, of what this sort of early life of the church was looking like with Jesus in the north of of Israel. So on the one hand, is this kind of similar to what Jesus has just been doing already? He's just calling people, inviting people to follow him. And that meant, of course, leaving behind the old way of life and joining his new community. That's something we've already touched on. But on the other hand, there's something very disruptive about what Jesus has just done in Mark chapter 2. Jesus invited Levi, Levi the tax collector, right? So, so what this was, is uh, Levi was a Jewish man And he was, so in other words, he's one of Peter, Andrew, James, and John's brothers, so to speak, but he's on Caesar's payroll. So Rome is occupying Israel at the time, and Levi has become a willing participant in sort of the Roman exploits in the north of Israel. So essentially, he would have been viewed as a traitor. He was exploiting his neighbors with sort of Rome's authority uh, to get rich. So Uh, At the very, I mean, talk about rough around the edges. Levi is just this guy um, that most of the people in his community would have resented uh, because he sold out to Rome in order to get rich off of them, right? So this is a very uh, shady character, I guess you could say. So Jesus, but Jesus calls him and invites him to be a part of the same community. So think if you're Peter, Andrew, and James, John, and you're seeing Jesus walk up to this tax collector's booth, you're hoping he's going to tell him off. And instead, Jesus says, hey, why don't you come join me and this ragtag group of people, and we'll be in community together, right? This is not at all what they would have anticipated. And Jesus also calls Simon The zealot. Now zealots were completely on the other ends of the spectrum. They were an underground militia who thought that they were doing God's work by sort of undermining Rome's uh, authority by insurrection. So they wanted to overthrow Rome through this sort of underground militia. And so what this means is that you've got these two guys, Simon and Levi, are part of the same new community of no more than 12 at this point and they could not have been more different ideologically, politically, religiously. These guys were on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. But Jesus called both of them to be his disciple and they both said yes to him. And it's so hugely significant and makes me want to stop here and just say no matter who you are, no matter what your past or your history is, we all have sort of equal footing before Jesus. And his invitation is to all of us. And so we can all say yes to him. We can all be forgiven of our sin. And we can all be welcomed into the family of God. And there's no one, myself or anyone else included, who can exclude you from the family of God because of your past or because of where you've been, because Jesus is the one who's calling you. He's the one who's inviting you. So no one can exclude you. And I love that about the family of God. It's beautiful. So they both, Simon and Levi, left their former lives and became a part of this same group of 12. So to give you some perspective, this is like the Keep America Great people in the same like family of 12 with, I don't know, a progressive socialist group. In the same little family of 12. It's just absolutely mind-bending crazy. We don't expect this to happen at all, and yet it's happening in the family of God. So this tells us so much about Jesus's ethic for life together. Number one, Jesus's community is diverse, and he actually purposefully made it this way. He wants it this way. He doesn't want a very monochromatic uh, you know, stale one-sided community. He actually has something much more dynamic in mind than that. And number two, it's open to everyone. Anyone can be a disciple which again, in first century culture would have been unheard of. And really frankly, even today, it's unheard of to say that anyone can join and become a part of this family and be, have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. The fact that I'm sitting here and I am forgiven and I'm welcomed in the family of God is an amazing thing. And I'm never, uh, I've never lost sort of the wonder of that, but it's also a high bar to be invited into the family of God. Because saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to his way of life as well, which includes what we're talking about, surrounding ourselves with people to be loved. And guaranteed, that includes people that you don't agree with, right? And this is that's the part that none of us wanna hear. We are guaranteed called to love people who are in the family of God who don't agree with us. Uh, in fact, this is one of the things that I've learned over the years of doing pastoral ministry, that the, this is one of the first things about spiritual leadership, is that we need to begin thanking God for the difficult people He's put in our life to love. Right? Our nature tells us to get people that are hard to love sort of out of our way, or you know, at least at arm's length. But in spiritual leadership and following after Jesus, being first in the kingdom of God, it's about becoming the least and the last. It's about putting your needs last. And I think that it's equally as much about loving those who are difficult and challenging to love. Number three, Jesus's inclusion of Levi and Simon. This is, again, Jesus' ethic for community. It tells us something that really matters to Jesus. He's more interested in our level of commitment than our level of maturity. Now this is an idea that I'm borrowing from a friend of ours, John Mark Comer out of Bridgetown Church in Portland, but, um, and he is the first one to frame it like this for me, that Jesus is more interested in our level of commitment than our level of maturity, and I think the reason for that is because um, community breeds maturity. Like you can't be mature in Christ without com- being committed to his people. It just does not work. And when we are committed, we begin this process of formation and we become mature when we're committed. So Levi and Simon are these prime examples for us. They actually give us a lot of hope, I think, because they were rough. Really, really, really rough around the edges. And on completely opposite ends of the spectrum, as I've said, but they both said yes to Jesus. And over time, under the influence of Jesus' presence, they turned the world upside down, the scripture says. But they did it together, not separate, but together. And I believe that's what God wants to do in our generation and in our city with people with different ideology and different um uh, backgrounds and political leadings and personalities and all of that to come together under the teaching of Jesus and under his vision for life together to love one another well and to then spread that love to our broader community. And I, again, I think this is one of the greatest uh, evidences of the power of God and the reality of the resurrection is our ability, the people of Jesus, coming together and loving each other when it's hard. So this sort of is a bedrock reality um, that's baked into Jesus's vision for community. So the impossibility of Christian love is radical, and it's also completely within reach because Jesus showed us the way. And also, by the way, what's the next thing that Levi does after he says yes to Jesus? Jesus has him throw a big party, uh, he had a big dinner party. And he's hanging with all of the outcasts and all of the sinners, not in the synagogue because they didn't come to the synagogue. The outcasts and the sinners, they didn't hang out there. And so Jesus wasn't hanging out there all the time. He went outside of the synagogue and he was at the sinner's house. He was at the tax collector's house, at Levi's house. And for Jesus, church happens around the dinner table in these very organic grassroots settings. Now, uh, since COVID-19 has sort of taken us by storm and we haven't been doing big gatherings together, I think this is, again, a great moment for us to lean into it and to put an emphasis back in the home gathering as a primary space where god wants to meet us and also spread the gospel it's not just in our little chapel um on newport avenue or at kenwood school where we typically gather where the gospel goes out in power it's actually in your living room at your dinner table with your community and with Um, the people outside of your community who haven't said yes to Jesus yet, who need that opportunity to experience the love of Jesus. It happens beautifully at your table. So again, we're adding things back intentionally. Yes, we're going to gather again, hopefully really soon. But in the meantime, we're going to gather in these small communities where we get to love each other, take action And be committed to each other. Okay, one last turn before we're done. You guys have done awesome so far. And I promise this is the last scripture we're going to look at before we go to a time of communion. So, Matthew chapter, or yeah, Matthew chapter eight. So um, that's one book to the left, chapter eight, verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So here we have another person saying, Hey, I'm in. I want to follow you. And Jesus, sort of knowing behind the scenes what's going on in this person's consciousness, he says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Right. So he's getting to the challenge and the difficulty of following after him. And then another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, why do I share this text of all texts before we wrap up here? And there's a specific purpose and reason for that. Give me a minute to set this up and it'll all make sense. So many ways we can take this passage, but here's I think, a sort of a contrast to the immature, rough-around-the-edges disciples from Mark chapter 2 to here in Matthew chapter 8, we have a couple of what we might call mature-like disciples, teachers of the law. They were well-respected, given high honor in their culture. And he says to Jesus, hey, I'll follow you wherever you tell me to go. And Jesus says, are you sure you want to do that? Are you really sure? Because really, honestly, you know, um, foxes have dens, birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. I am homeless, essentially, is what Jesus is saying. And so it's basically Jesus uh, speaking against this person's comfort. Like, if you follow me, not everything will be... Like to your perfect specification. And then another guy pops up, another well respected teacher of the law and says, Before I fall, you let me go and bury my father. Um, And this is obviously a text that we've, a lot of us have read before, and sometimes we don't know what to do with it. Uh, We don't have time for all of what it means, but I will just say this. Um, He was basically saying, Hey, my father's old, I'm about to inherit his business you know the family business and so I have a resp- and I have a responsibility to my family and to my parents to my siblings and all of that so um since I'm inheriting this family business my father's about to to die and 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 all of that after he's gone I'm going to put all of our affairs in order and then I will come and follow you and notice what Jesus says to that he says let the dead bury their dead <laughs> which is nuts he's saying something really powerful about how he's reordering life together and community he's saying actually your first responsibility isn't to your you know nuclear family like it was before it's actually to the other people who call on my name who who follow after me he's saying that there is this urgency to the kingdom of god and it's gripping Jesus, and he wants it to grip his people as well. There are people to be loved here. I'm bringing healing. I'm bringing redemption. I'm bringing power and wholeness and life and hope to the whole world. Do you want in or not? And we have to experience the same urgency to the gospel that Jesus is presenting here. He wants us to feel the urgency of what's going on here. This is our moment, people of Jesus, to rise up and to be a part of his kingdom thing happening here in Central Oregon. And we believe that involves prayer. Which is why we've launched the 24/ 7 prayer movement, but it also involves a radical commitment to life together. remember the end of this story is that these mature, highly esteemed people turn him down. That's what we know. We don't know the whole story, but we do know they, they, they couldn't handle what Jesus said so so boiling this all down to like the uh, like the the meat of it, or the, like, what is the, the truth here for us to walk away with? Saying yes to Jesus means that you're saved and forgiven of all your sin, and I hope you've experienced that freedom that comes from saying yes to Jesus, set free from the kingdom of darkness and all of that, because he loves you, not because you've earned it or done anything in order um, to deserve it. But it also means that saying yes to Jesus is, is calling Jesus your king and really making him the king of your life. So you can't have the kingdom without the king. It just doesn't work like that. And the king is good. He's overflowing with love and compassion and he's inviting you into his project of love and redemption and of hope. And it's not a solo project. It's not a solo project. It's not an individual project. It's a community project. And we're meant to do it all together. And his question that he posed to the disciples in Matthew chapter 8 is the same question he's posing to us. Do you want in or not? You could be young. You can, be, you can have unpopular political views. You can be rough around the edges. Jesus values your commitment over your maturity because community will get you to real maturity over time in under the influence of the power of his Holy Spirit. So, okay, so wrap up everything we've been saying here jesus lived in a community our call to follow him is a simultaneously a call for us to live in his community we're all at different stages in our maturity and that's okay it's a good thing and a lot of people turn him down because the stakes were really high and the end goal is to love and to serve one another and the world really well so that's sort of the baseline theological framework from the life of jesus for uh, our vision for life together. Now, out of that come just a couple of values that I'd love for you to just sit with, maybe write these down, get ready to sort of live into these things, and to just meditate on them in the coming days, okay? So here's here are the values that are birthed out of um, this biblical sort of summary of life together. Number one, um, community is a diverse, loyal network of Jesus people, not a loosely defined friend group. Um, a lot of times in Western culture we say we want community, but really what we mean by that is a bunch of people who are the same age, have all the same interests, who we basically just get along with really well. And we should ha- you should have a lot of friends, especially if you're an extrovert, like go for it. Have as many friends as you can manage sustainably without running yourself into the ground or being rabidly busy or whatever. Um, But community is something that's slightly different than that. It's not everyone you agree with all the time. It's not loosely defined. It's actually a committed family. Like my commitment to my nuclear family, my wife and my kids, is way, way different than my commitment to uh, everyone else in the world because um, I belong to them. I have a specific responsibility to them. And so I am very, very present to them and take their needs very, very seriously. And that's what community is about as well. Um, And by the way, it may feel as though your community, basically the only thing you have in common with them is the fact that you're Jesus people. And really that is the thing that unites us. He designed it this way because he wants us to get a fuller picture of Christ. So he puts us in community with people who are radically different from us makes things maybe more challenging than a lucidified friend group. But that's the point Jesus is calling us into a life that is radical. Number two, uh, another value here is that um, community is church around the table. It's not just a book club and books are great and I love to read and I think we should be doing more book club type stuff. You should, if especially if you're a reader, like go nuts, read all the books you like, invite your friends, to study them, but community is more than that, it's a sacred rhythm that you need to really thrive, just like rest, and Sabbath, and eating, and drinking, and sleeping, and all of that, like you need the community, uh, the rhythm of community to really thrive and flourish, and that is fundamentally a trust in God thing, Jesus said it's a part of our life together, And so therefore, we're trusting that he knows what's best for us. That's a basic tenet of discipleship. And again, because everyone is different, everyone brings something different. And when everyone brings something different, we realize the beauty of the diversity of our community, and we start to get a fuller picture of who Jesus is. Some of you are really oriented towards justice. Others of you are really oriented towards worship. Some of you are really oriented towards understanding the truth. Some of you are really extroverted, really introverted, really full of charisma, and have a, like, a great sort of I don't know, sense of humor. Others of you are far more cerebral and love to think. It's like, and as we all come together in community, we get a full picture of who Jesus is, and we need other people's perspectives in order to have a fuller picture of Jesus. Number three, value a family I belong to, not an event I go to. Right. This is so key. Community is something that you're a part of. It's an organism more than it is an organization. We are a part of the same living thing. It's not an event that you attend. And I think the loneliness crisis and, and the identity crisis in the West are going hand in hand with radical individualism. Um, we have this crazy freedom in, in the West, but we have very little connection and meaning we end up being very rootless. So we can't really answer the question of who we are until we know what story or stories that we're a part of. So a lot of our rootlessness and I believe identity crisis um, and all of the um, symptoms that go along with our identity crises kind of stems from this reality that we don't really know the story that we're a part of. And that's why God calls us a family and calls us into a family is because he is um always been about blessing a family promising to bless a family in which the whole world is going to be impacted and experience a good life through so when you say yes to community you're saying yes to jesus's promise that he made all the way back in genesis chapter 12 to abraham and you're becoming a part of that much larger story so you are being anchored in something that's way way bigger than you and your identity crisis begins to fade because you're not defined by the sum of your actions or whatever. You're not what you do. You're not what you say. You are who God says you are, and you're a part of this much larger story, and the point is it's bigger than you. And sometimes it's messy, but it's so, so good, right? And then finally, last value, and then we're done. Uh, it's a group. Of vulnerable people in process, not an idealized caricature. Now, I'm an idealist by nature. I'm a one on the Enneagram, which means I really like things to be excellent. And I always can see room for improvement, So I'm always pushing for things like that. But community is sort of messy by design. Remember, Jesus put Simon and Levi together. And he called you. And he called me. We're all works in process. We can't expect to come together and for everything to be perfect. In fact, if we try and maintain perfection, we're actually going to destroy community. It just comes apart the seams because we're not actually being real, honest, our true selves in community. The only way that we truly change is that we pull back the veil and we actually are self-aware enough to see ourselves and one another for who we really are and to be dramatically changed by the presence of Jesus. There's something like supernatural that happens in the community that produces real maturity. Again, your responsibility is commitment and action, and God brings about the maturity and the discipleship. This is a basic tenet of what it means to be in community. So we don't hold to an idealized character of community ends up tearing everyone apart, but we instead lean into and accept that we're all people in process. So um, write those things down, uh, meditate on these things in the coming week, and then also dream about begin entering back into uh, life with your community and if you're safe and healthy and practicing social distancing standards and you're under 25 people um, from our perspective you're able to gather again face to face over a community meal and i hope that you Greatly, greatly enjoy your time together. If you're not in a community already and you'd like to be, we'd love to help you with that. You can reach out to us at communities at riverbendajc.org. Love to help you get connected. And um, our our main thing is that we just love you and want to see you thriving. And we believe that this is a huge part of your thriving. So how is God inviting you to take action and be committed to the people in your community this week? Consider that. And then let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you so much for my friends, sisters, brothers. We thank you so much for calling us into this family. It's so radical. And we're so eager to get back into it. So we want to add back intentionally, not unintentionally. We don't want to just participate in loosely defined friend things. We want to be a part, anchored in this much larger story. You said you're calling a family that's going to bless the world. And you've promised to give us everything we need to make that dream become reality. And so, God, we um, hold these things uh, very close to our hearts, and we want to lean into it. So, God, we just pray for your, um, your spirit to be with us. You guide us as we enter back into community this week. Um, and, Lord, we, we love you, and we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, now it's time to go into a time of communion. So there's a little guided meditation for you. Grab the bread and the cup that you've prepared for yourself, and let's take that together as one church in separate homes. Grace and peace.